Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets podcast, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music world. This month I'm speaking to Rory Phillips, who is a producer, a DJ and a remixer based in London. Rory's got a really eclectic style when it comes to DJing. Uh, he was heavily involved in trash in London throughout the mid-2000s. Uh, he's also a producer and remixer, and he's done a prolific number of remixes for some huge artists throughout his career. So I got up with Rory to speak about his career, his influences, his motivations, and the first question I asked him was about his musical beginnings. My mum tells a story about coming home <laughs> to our house when I was a toddler and I was grinding her Joni Mitchell record in, into the ground um, with hot chocolate powder. Um, nice. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my first musical related memory. But that's more a story told than a memory. But, um, Did that sound good? Did it, was that I've, a good combination? I have no clue, but um, you know, maybe, maybe I was industri- an industrial toddler. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, grew up with a lot of, a lot of you know pop music in the house, Beatles and things like that. Um, and as a child, I was I got very into Dire Straits, <laughs> like mainly because of the Money for Nothing video and the the uh, guitar riff on the intro. Was that was it like a neon video? It was it was like a really early computer graphics video, which when you're a kid you're like, what is that? Mm-hmm. But yeah. Those are my early childhood, mem- childhood memories of music. Great, Dire Straits are brilliant. Like I still love Dire Straits. But yeah, they get they get a lot of rap because they became they became like the kind of the 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 band of the of the uh, like Ford Mondeo driver, like very kind of partridge mm-hmm. <laughs> fan base. But you know they've got some bangers, haven't they? Yeah, I love their stuff. And so where did you where did you progress on from from destroying Joni Mitchell and? To As a teenager, I was really into um, indie rock and hip hop and kind of like rave, kind of breakbeaty kind of things. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I didn't really pick a camp and stick to it. Mm-hmm. And whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Birmingham. Ah, yeah. I, yeah, all I could discover was it was the West Midlands. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, I was trying to think, where is it going to be? Is it going to be Stoke? I'm from Birmingham, but we moved we moved to Tamworth when I was about ten. Oh, you got the ski slopes. Yeah, ski slope. there's the uh, snow dome. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's the snow dome, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So everyone, that's is one of the first things people think of when they think of Tamworth. Not Julian Cope, not Robert Peel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, snow dome. Yeah. yeah. So did you go to did you go to like club nights in Birmingham? What sort of things did you do there? When I was a teenager, I went to like there was an all ages kind of rave night at a small club um, called. Uh, Rockwells in Tamworth mm. and then it used to go to Snobs and Edwards in Birmingham and Edwards was interesting because it was kind of like on one floor it was kind of an indie club and then on the top floor there was kind of like a goth industrial night so it was kind of like people would flip between the two mm-hmm. so you had these kind of like very very kind of like intense subculture upstairs and then just kind of like general kind of like moshing downstairs yeah and then like a smorgasbord in the corridor of like yes exactly yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. people uh, yeah i went to go i went to a university in birmingham i know it just snobs a few times right. and uh yeah it was great fun it was yeah. absolute carnage oh yeah 
Well, because it was like, like it was very like powder pint, maybe even less. Yeah. I yeah. thought I'd imagine that. I was telling someone the other day, I was like, I swear they had vending machines and it was like a quid for like double vodka and coke. Or that might have been after my coke. time, but <laughs> yeah, it's believable. It's nuts. Great times in there, though. Like, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great place. Yeah. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> have you been back recently, like with the monorail and stuff in Birmingham? Um, yeah, I, go, I mean, I go, I go back to my family because my family still lives there. Um, yeah, the monorail was one of those, one of those uh, mythical things that I thought would never happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's very odd. I, I've never even knew I've not, I've not ridden it. <laughs> I've just seen it in town. It's brilliant. It is amazing. I, um, yeah, I, I just went, I go through Birmingham to go home and I uh, went on the monorail to go and visit someone in Birmingham. I was like, this feels like the future, finally. <laughs> Birmingham's catching up with the rest of the world. It's catching up with Springfield. Yeah. <laughs> cool, yeah. So, um, ah, you also mentioned Stock Aitken and Waterman were like a big, a big influence. Yeah, because, well, actually, uh, Kylie, Kylie Minogue was probably my gateway drug on that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, I, I really love that kind of 80, that very, like, machine kind of like percussion like we were talking about the 727 that's very like stock aching a Waterman kind of is it yeah high energy kind of production yeah what was it about that I mean they had like they just had the Midas touch for like 10, 15 I think it's because they were really aware of what was going on in the clubs like Pete Waterman because he was doing Hitman and Her as well like that, a lot of the stuff like they were kind of channeling what was going on in, in America but bringing it back and they're kind of we, I, I would credit them for being responsible for house music being bigger here than it was in the US for a really long time because they were kind of like making it a sort of accessible version of that but then people were looking to kind of like you know the stuff that they were referencing mm-hmm. like that's how Steve Silk Hurley got to number one and things like that yeah I mean they just seem to be able to manufacture hits yeah well they had a very like Motown approach as well because they did it all in house they were the record label they were the producers they were the songwriters so they could actually just get it in and out really quickly and they had no major label kind of interference or anything it's perfect and there's there's a huge amount of confidence behind doing that as well isn't yeah, there well, you can't just have a good intention and make, and make that happen it's a serious coming together of many yeah many factors there isn't there well that's it I think they kind of like I think Pete Waterman was like the salesman because if you know you've seen him on telly he's a very confident kind of like direct guy isn't he mm-hmm. and you know they were kind of they were all they were all kind of working in the studio but I think like some of them were more kind of you know the studio guys and, and one was kind of like essentially A&Ring and kind of like pushing it and being the kind of mouthpiece for them yeah amazing really amazing what they did like I don't know if we'll ever see something like a little hit factory team like that ever I, again. I don't know. Like I think I think now more than ever it, it's kind of like possible. Like it could be even smaller. It could be literally like, I mean, you know, I'm sh- I'm sure there are there's, there are subcultures we don't know about that, where that's happening. Mm-hmm. But yeah, maybe not on a pop level. But at the same time, it seems more possible than ever because everything's super accessible. Because that would have been, you know, a huge outlay to start that studio. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time. Anyone can start a label now, and because especially as you know, there's no physical product that needs to be made mm-hmm. or anything. Yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, so um, we're we're now in London. Yeah. We're now in. Well, you can studio. you can you can hear the train. Yeah. Guess where we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got an amazing studio here. Oh, thank uh, you. An amazing array of equipment that we could probably just spend an hour and a half talking about all the gear <laughs> I imagine so yeah what, when did you move down to London when did that happen uh, moved 20 years ago this year 
um, I studied in Wales for three years and then moved here. Um, started working at Radio One um, behind the scenes on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Nice. What did you? I mean, that must have been really exciting to be working at Radio One. Yeah, because it was. It was. I was kind of work. I was putting together the website. I was kind of the one technical guy on the website, but at the same time, kind of, it was a really exciting place to work. It was just pop stars passing because it was a really, really quite a small building at that time. Now it's huge. Um, it's just pop stars passing through like it was no big deal. You just become very used to it. Did it freak you out in the beginning? Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, my first week, I managed to trip over John Peel when he was sleeping under his desk. <laughs> so that, that kind of that, you know, that was a big eye opener. At least you got yourself known. You got yourself known. I don't think week. he noticed. No, really. <laughs> that's amazing dedication. He's sleeping under it. But yeah, that's cool. Uh, when what roughly when was that? Like what, so, ninety nine till about two thousand two. I worked there. Amazing. What did you What did you study in Newport? Uh, multimedia, so like digital art. So I was doing a lot of stuff with kind of interactive things on the computer with music or you know virtual instruments and things like that. Oh, cool. Were you using like Macromedia Director? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, because that was big for ages. Yeah. It was like a huge fad, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was because it was yeah because it, I mean. Um, it was the era of the CD-ROM as well, so it was kind of that. That was what made the content that would be on CD-ROM. Like if you had a bonus feature on something, yeah. And then they kind of like hastily kind of like shoehorned it to be on the web, mm. and then kind of Flash sort of came after that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Flash was a, that was amazing, but uh, yeah, I mean, even with old like computer music magazines or any old CD you get, you put it on and be like. It's director. It's yeah. director. And it's yeah. always like you press the button and then the sound comes about two milli, you know, like oh, yeah. twenty yeah. milliseconds later, and then you get this like GIF image of like some <laughs> animation of a. Line. Ah, they weren't doing it properly. <laughs> Mine were never like that. <laughs> Have you seen that clip where Pete Tong reads out a hyperlink? Oh. Yeah, that's that's before my time. We had we had a domain name at that point. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, that it was a very very lengthy hyperlink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I guess maybe that was yeah the really early nights because even he's bemused by like what the hell am I reading this HTTP yeah. forward slash colon forward slash forward slash. Well, we did a f- bunch of exciting stuff with Pete Tong. We, like we we did um like you know when video was a very a minuscule like one inch window on your screen. We we did a thing where we'd simulcast like live visuals during his show. Nice. A few you know a few times um, which at the time was very. You know, it hadn't really been done, and it was very new, new well, they, world. Yeah, is real player and think on real player. Yeah, streaming. Because they they had a video artist in residence. Well, they had an artist in residence at Radio One, and this was kind of like something we did with him. Mm-hmm. And was that like studio in studio shot, or was no? It was like it was like um like computer like like kind of video, visual mixing like like you'd see in the background of a of a DJ on a giant LED. Oh, now. Cool. Cool. Do you use that stuff now, like when you play live? No, you... no, no. Get boot up uh, directory <laughs> yeah, again. Bring it back. Yeah. Or the MIDI notes. Like yeah. Just just the... just re just bring resurrect my uh, Mac Seven Six Hundred. Yeah. <laughs> Get all the floppy disks out. Zip drive. Oh, was a zip drive. <laughs> Super advanced. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I miss the zip drives. I just never had. I one. don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's cool, man. You've been involved in quite a few 
nights here and how did you like integrate yourself into the city when you came here? Well, very shortly after moving here, I've started going to Trash, which was Errol's night um, at the time. It was at a much smaller venue than the end. It was like a place called the Annex on Dean Street. And I'd been DJing when I was studying and I saw kind of like a kindred spirit in him. Like he was playing indie music, but mixed with dance music, also pop music, which, you know, seems very normal now, but it wasn't really what was being done because clubbing was very conservative. It's like you you went to your house club to listen to house music. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Things were in their pockets. And it just seemed like, okay, we're on the same page. And we got talking and like we um, end up having like a, like a one and a half hour phone chat the next day and then I started kind of working with him, helping him with his website well working, helping him with the trash website and then when the annex closed down um, we had the offer to move to the end and the end had a second room so he asked if we'd be interested in doing that room nice wow. yeah. that's and great it's been yeah it's been it's uh, been a, it was, it was uh, the longest trial run in history <laughs> <laughs> I love what he... Because there's a couple of quotes from him I've written down. One of them was... Um, there was never any vision for, for trash. There was never, like, a thing that was no, set out there an was, objective. There was, there was standards rather than an ambition. It was just kind of like we wanted it to kind of... It to be, a, you know, before that, it was a really a term of a safe space for people. Because the end was like, you know... The end on the weekend was very different to the end on a Monday night when we did trash. So you kind of had to kind of filter the door a bit to make sure everyone was there for the right reasons and we're not going to kind of like be poking fun at like, you know, people for the way they dress or how they present themselves. Yeah. Bowling around. And, we did, and I think we did a really good job at, at like keep, keep, you know, some, some, some people, you know, obviously we didn't get it right 100% of the time because it's impossible. But um, I think we did a really good job of keeping it a kind of safe space. Yeah, and a um, continual party atmosphere as well. Well, that many accounts. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great, man. I, I, I've, you know, I've been looking into it a lot over the last few days, and it ticks. It ticks a lot of my interest. So, in in terms of like the way you, you play, like indie, electro, and pop, and yeah, mashing that together, it's such a great fusion. You can. Yeah. Well, it's about finding the things that link them. Mm-hmm. You know. That's why when when Electroclash started, that was a good that was that was a really good kind of like gateway. But it was it was a good kind of like in between the two worlds. Mm-hmm. It made made that it was very exciting for that reason. And it was on a Monday night. Josh, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, every week. So that's that's a whole that's a whole new slant on a club night, isn't it? Being on a Monday night. Well, that at that time, kind of indie clubbing in London was very much in the week. It actually, wasn't that much to do on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So you'd have trash on a Monday. There'd be like other clubs on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and I think it was because you know a lot of it was probably aimed at students. But it was all very in central London as well, mm-hmm. which is not really very common anymore now. Like this was all in Soho, right? Cool. Yeah. Um, and the end was the club owned by Mr. C. Yeah. From the Shaman. Yeah. Nice. And you, I mean, the guests, the people that turned up. I mean, the bands that played there, the guests that turned up were like seminal music artist I mean yeah this night seems to have like just captured a whole a whole era in like our zeitgeist of but the thing is it all looks very impressive now but at the time we were just booking kind of like what we were playing and these people were very new at the time mm-hmm. but the good thing about Trash is that because we had such a kind of regular following the club was the star so 
if you pre- if we if we could we could present music we like we didn't have to worry about people whether people would show up for the band or not mm-hmm. because we were we were just we were trying to shine a light on them so it gave them a, it was a good platform for those bands to to play yeah and i really like the approach of like not um not announcing headliners and things like that like keeping that back because most mostly it was announced i'd say apart from like you know if someone was really big like too big for the venue we'd have to keep it a secret but most most of it was announced and it was and it was always a fiver <laughs> really <laughs> yeah. wow yeah that's incredible um what 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 time did it like start and finish um, ten till ten. Started at ten, finished at three. Oh, that's fairly respectable. It's not yeah, like a, you could just about still go to work the next day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which I did do for a while. I did, um, no, but I was young, so. Did you like keep that on the on the quiet at work? Like, no, no, I've just no. The, I made the mis- they, I made the mistake of letting them know because uh, so I couldn't really call in sick because <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. they were very aware of what I was doing on a Monday night. Yeah. Flew again. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, funny that. Yeah, you hurt your shoulder from carrying uh, not records. <laughs> yeah. It was something else. What was it? And yeah, were you playing? I, I'm guessing you were playing records then, like actual. Yeah, I'd say most, records. most, mostly records, and the CDs kind of filtered in. Um, yeah. Um, see, I mean, the CDs were usually things that weren't out on vinyl. But it was just—it was just how we, how you know, we played records because that's how we learned how to DJ. Yeah. And what's your preferred medium now when you're when you're playing? Um, ideally, I mean, if I can, I when I play in London, I play with vinyl. Um, but if I'm travelling, you know, practically practically to say, I, I use the USBs, but also love the two thousands anyway. Kind of um, gave me a bit of a lease of life after this after years of just being on CDJs. Mm-hmm. Nice man, nice. Yeah, because your mixes are amazing. Oh, thank you. The amount of people I've recommended your mixes to is is phenomenal. I'm always, <laughs> like, and they've always surprised me. They've always, I've always had them on my iPod and been on like a long journey. I've been listening to something for like forty five minutes. But who is this? It's brilliant. That's another one I've always. Oh, it's him again. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, it's just really great, and it's a bit of an education I think for people who don't know have a broader spectrum of influences as you do it's a bit of an education for somebody like me or anyone else who listens to go wow what is that track that's brilliant you know? oh, that's very kind of you thank you <laughs> yeah really good stuff really enjoyed it um yeah uh, oh okay just going about uh, talking about records i was thinking about um because during trash there was um a bit of a mashup sort of culture of mixing tracks together wasn't there yeah like the the blue monday Kylie Minogue right. thing that Errol did yeah. and I think there was another one Baby One More Time and Loaded right okay yeah. by Primal Screen which I still can't quite imagine um, but yeah uh, I was thinking about Blue Monday and I was thinking about how amazing that record sleeve design was and how like oh, absolutely uh, yeah incredible and forward thinking it was I wanted to ask you if, if you could think if you know of any like um, similar record sleeves that have like taken taken your uh, you know captivated you in the same way that that one did um, there's a talk. There's um. There's like a limited version of uh, speaking speaking in tongues by Talking Heads. Um, um, I hope I'm not wrong on this, but it's uh, I think it's Robert Rauschenberg did the artwork, and it's kind of a transparent sleeve in the record, but you can kind of like ro- it's it's got a rotating element to it, so the mm-hmm. artwork can change 
it's like a um, rotate like a kind of like variable artwork right nice yeah. like those code wheels used to get on old computer games yeah not not dissimilar <laughs> like but it's, it's that kind of yeah that kind of like um you know imprinted in wheel nice because i was trying to i was trying to rack my brains because i have a bit of a record collection the only one i could think of that was really funny or, or totally different was monty python there's a Monty Python record called Instant Record Collection, and it folds out into a box. That looks like a record collection. It looks collection. like a record collection. You can put it on your shelf, and it looks like you've got loads of records, and it like, says the Rolling Stones and all this stuff on it. And it's genius. Like, it, it actually, I've not heard of that. That's genius. It is really cool, yeah. It actually, it's huge. It made, yeah, it's, yeah, I just uh, caught, grabbed my attention. And what about sort of records? So, like, you, you'd, uh, when you play Trash and, um, and things like that, you would play a total mix of of all kinds of styles um do you have what would be your sort of go-to records that you'd like you know is going to take the roof off and you know is going to work uh if you need to pull it out at some point um i think it really changed over time because it was it was we there was a real emphasis on new music at trash so that would really kind of like depend on on the month or the year but I'm off the top of my head, I can't really think of one in particular. I'm sorry. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking if, like, when I would DJ, and I, and I know this is, like, not really about me at all, but Anthrax, Bring the Noise and Public Enemy. Right, OK. <laughs> I just knew that whatever I was doing, if I, could, if I played that record, everyone would go nuts again. You know, like, it right. was always, like, the go-to, like, oh, shit, it's going wrong. Let's fit that on. Good track. I love that track. Um, just um, going back to talking about trash and you saying about new new music was quite pioneered. Um, there was a story about Urban Hymns being given to Errol Alkin before it had been out and he got asked to play it. That was uh, before my time, so you'd have to ask Errol about that, wasn't was it? Okay, yeah. I'd have to ask him. I thought it was so cool. Like The manager apparently came to the end and gave him the first version of it and was like, this is for you. I know that happened with um, Elephant by the White Stripes. Really? Yeah. And basically played uh, Seven Nation Army the first time any of us had heard it. He hadn't even listened to it yet. <laughs> he just like listened to the beginning and was like, oh, that sounds quite good. And literally put it on and it went off. No way. It was the first man. time any of us had ever heard it. And that's such a kind of, you know, it's, it's a football chant now. Yeah, know? it is, unfortunately. It's sort of been bastardised. Um, yeah. Political chant, even. Yeah, great, great. I mean, that's one of those songs that the moment you hear it, you're like, this is something, yeah. this is something big. But that's it's it. It's, it's one of those songs, it's hard to imagine a time where it didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, so you've gone on to, um, yeah, DJ and um, and produce. Yeah. Many a remix. Many a remix. Many a remix for for Taylor Swift, Franz Ferdinand, Crystal Castles, The Who, uh, The, the White Who Lies. <laughs> 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 Can't read my own writing. Uh, XX, The Gossips of the Sisters. Yeah, I mean, uh, what what? Um, when did you start remixing? When when was the inception of doing that for you? I think I've always made music like on four tracks things, and I think remixing was um, I started about maybe fifteen years ago. Um, I just kind of I think I think because Trash was successful at the time we bo- both Errol and myself got offers to remix things and we both I think I could you know I can't speak for Errol obviously but I think remixing is a really good way of figuring out how songs work because you, you're presented with the with the parts of it and you're like oh, okay that's what that's these are these things that work together and this is, and make the result absolutely yeah so I mean I did years of remixing before like actually making anything myself but 
yeah, some 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 sometimes it's um, quite daunting to remix a song you really like, but also it's quite and sometimes it's quite exciting to remix a song you really don't like very much, mm-hmm. or you know you're indifferent about. Yeah, because it's kind of you can know you can be a bit more destructive with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so that's great that like people coming to you for remixes for and I guess you got you got established for doing um, remixes. Yeah, and then yeah, that I, I guess that. But it was also that kind of like there was a there was a period where it was kind of. Every release had about five remixes on, which I'd say is less common now in kind of the indie indie rock world or the commercial world. Mm-hmm. Still very common in the dance world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard, I've heard, um, I've heard some people say like Marshall Jefferson said, like don't do remixes for anyone. Like if you're new and upcoming, Marshall Jefferson said like don't do remixes because every person out there is remixing everyone else. And you're basically just like diluting the bucket of music by doing remixes, right? But I, go on. I don't know. I think there's an argument as an artist for not having remixes. If 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 that's if, if you if you believe that, but I do think it's a really good way of kind of finding your feet, whether I, you whether you release them or not. You know. Yeah, I think I I, I totally agree with that. And from my own from my own point of view, um, I love doing remixes, whether like they are released or not. Yeah. Mostly not. But you know, like I enjoy it. Yeah, like having access to all the stems and yeah. seeing like, okay, that's what they did with the kick drum and the bass, and that's how that vocal worked. And oh, there's a reverse reverb there. And I mean, a yeah. lot of artists are very democratic about like sharing the parts as well and putting them out there so you can remix them. Yeah. Um, I th- yeah, it is. I think it's a really good way of, of, of getting your stuff out there. Which which of your remixes have been have been like the most gratifying for you? Um, there's one I did for a band called Units, which is, which is like a 1980s synth punk band that I a record that I really really loved. So that was quite daunting. But then somehow um, after you know I was, I've been playing this record out for years in its original form, and I think in the MySpace years the the Units reappeared as a kind of like accessible, um, as accessible normal people <laughs> that you can speak to on MySpace. Um, and we became, amazing days. yeah, I know. And then we, so we would, I would, um, got chatting to Scott from the units and interviewed him for, because Errol's site had content on and does, still does, um, interviewed him for Errol's site, a very lengthy interview. And he asked mm-hmm. if he's like, oh, I've been checking out your stuff. Would you like to remix us? Cause it's been, we're re-releasing high pressure days. So I did that, um, and that's 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 kind of been the one I've that still people still, and it's been almost ten years, and that's the one that people still kind of like say, oh, I really love that remix. Great, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and and I did read an interview where you spoke about that, saying it was one of your favorite albums of all time. Yeah. So like, I mean, was that a daunting prospect when the li- files came? A little, and yeah. Like, oh fuck. Well, what he did do, he said he sent me kind of like um, a few kind of like live bootlegs of them around the time. And it was kind of a live version of that song that had a very different arrangement. And I was kind of, oh, okay. And so I kind of, and it was a bit more kind of um, almost like speaking in tongues era, talking headsy, kind of like, you know, a bit funkier. And I kind of like decided to go that route with it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like weirdly, weirdly, really made, it just made me see the song in another way. I was like, okay, this is the kind of thing that can be done with it. If they can remix themselves like that, you know, that can be done. Excellent. You've also mentioned um, the production process 
for you is is sort of was an alien world because you had like a lack of formal training in yeah. in it. So how did you how did you come how did you overcome that? It's still it's still not an easy thing for me. I mean, I'm more of a kind of like as you can see like a gear person. But the you know the good thing about um, computer software and DAWs is that you can kind of you know draw in the notes, correct the mistakes, kind of you know make make it sound more of a mistake you know do you can you can kind of you can kind of bluff your way through it in a kind of in a way that is that does make sense mm. absolutely yeah yeah and um yeah i think trial and error is, yeah. is how a lot of us have, have have made music like pre youtube yeah i'm guessing for you like yeah you, i mean i've learned i've learned a lot about music theory and harmony and melody but at the same time i'm not kind of an instant player mm. i'm more of a kind of pro, more of a programmer than yeah. anything else yeah I can totally relate relate to that uh, absolutely I just tell people I, pl- I play the computer <laughs> and they say play because I don't really play keys I don't play the synth but, but that's the thing when you're tinkering if, with, with electronic music you're also kind of you're in charge of every instrument you know yeah exactly and the movement of it yeah and you started up a subscription based label yeah which had quite an inventive uh, idea behind it yeah it was um, so it was called Mixed Fortunes and it was kind of you subscribed as a flat fee and you would receive a record in the post every few months um, of original material. Um, so it was a good idea. S- sent me to the poorhouse a little bit because um, just after I started it, um, Royal Mail was sold off and certain um, limits that had been put on the inc- on the, the price of postage were mm-hmm. lifted and we had the, the biggest postage increase in history (laughs) (laughs) the stars aligned yeah exactly but what did what did it end up happening i mean even though i then um i bulk bought like about 500 pounds worth of stamps because if you buy a um you know a first class stamp or a first class large stamp they retain they they have they have whatever the current value is Right. So, because I knew it would happen again next year, and it did. It happened again and again and again. So you, that was wow. Can you do that? Can, uh, you, can we, you like trade stamps? Is that? I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> possibly. Yeah, you, you could have invest in stamp futures if you wanted to. Yeah. I said the returns would be quite low, but at the same time, it kind of like, it's 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 it did it did uh did save me a little bit. But you know, yeah, it was a good excuse to get some original music out there in a kind of inventive way because it was. Um, yeah, you know everything. Streaming was was in its infancy, and and the way music was being delivered was changing a lot. So you had to kind of like think of new ways of presenting it. And I didn't really want to make an album because I had these songs that were kind of quite disparate and didn't really sit together. So mm-hmm. well, a series of singles would be a good way of presenting them. Definitely, and I think I think that sort of ingenuity is like what's required now in music because nobody really wants to release an album. And you know, sort of singles, single sales. I don't know, like single sales aren't strong. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of inventive release method is exactly like what's required. You know, yeah. sort of that out of the box thinking. I mean, I mean, obviously, didn't invent the idea because you know, Rough Trade used to do a singles club in the in the eighties and nineties, and Sub Pop did singles club. Um, but at the same time, I'm seeing it's a lot. It's becoming a lot more common. That kind of you know. It's good. It's good because it's also you know it's a good indication that people trust you, and that and they you, they do but you know they believe that you're they don't know what they're going to get mm. ahead of time. 
Yeah, I think it's a really commendable thing, and mm. uh, you you sold out of your concert, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, you had a few hundreds. Yeah, because it, it was very small runs, so. Cool, great. Uh, I just want to ask you as well about I uh, I don't know if this was you that tweeted this, but there's a track called Blank by Blank Spaces, called Mixed Signals. I'm pretty sure you tweeted about it sometime. What is that track? It's so good. So it's um that's so blank spaces. My friend uh, Daniel Gallagher's band, or it's his project. Um, and mixed signals was uh, myself and Martin Dubka. Right. Um, we did a remix for Martin produced the original record. Um, and me and Martin did a remix together. It's under, under the name mixed signals because um Martin played it. I did a mixed fortunes live show for a while, and Martin played in that, and we uh. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'd call it mixed signals. Great, because I, I I remember that from like maybe two years ago. You tweeted it. That is such a great song. I love it. It's like I've I've shared that with so many people who are into like eighties music, who are into like, you know, electronic music. Of it's it's just it's just so brilliant. The lyrics well, are amazing. Ori- their original stuff is really good. Blank spaces. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Check good. them out. It's very like, I mean, he's he's British, but he's based in New York now. It's kind of very it's very kind of talking headsy, like early talking heads. Mm, there's some that's lovely synths on that. The oh. actually, can't remember. I, I remember. I, all I remember is we kind of like were going for kind of a bit of a Eddie Grant time warp thing. Mm-hmm. I actually can't remember what it sounds like. It's good. It's I need really to revisit good. it. Yeah. yeah, revisit it. It's fucking great. I wish I, if I could get it on vinyl, I definitely would. It's like yeah, it's seriously good track. That um, good. So yeah, I, I I came about. I I found out about your stuff from a Little Boots remix that right. you did. Yeah. As well, um, which was on, was that it was, it was on one of her vinyl releases, wasn't it? I don't think it was on vinyl, um, but it was like she did a she did like a bunch of she did um, like two EPs of remixes. Mm. It was on one of those, I believe. Yeah, she uh, and she did a sort of similar sort of um, in uh, like sort of anti music industry thing by setting up her own label away yeah. from the three hundred and sixty degree contract she had yeah. a few years ago. Um, yeah, really commendable, and she seems to be doing amazing, amazingly well. Well, yeah, she's yeah, she's um, very much on on her own and kind of be, being being the boss bitch character she presented. <laughs> a working girl, <laughs> right? Yeah, she did a video recently where she's like in a forest, DJing in a forest in some incredible location. They've got like drone cameras just flying around as she's oh, right, DJing I didn't see that. next to a fire. Check it out, it's amazing. It is really spectacular. Well, I just saw her today. <laughs> <laughs> Good, yeah, so you have um, you talked about uh, working at Radio 1 and um, tripping over John Peel yeah. while he was asleep. <laughs> um, uh, you've also mentioned that he was a very big influence on you musically. Yeah, because he was, he was kind of... Um, he was very, 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 you know, very up to the, up to the minute and, and clued up about what was going on. But he also wasn't precious about it, and also he was kind of not really didn't really care for genres so much either. Mm-hmm. And that was always kind of very influential. You know, he would play a very twee indie band and then a death metal record and a happy hardcore record. Yeah, I mean, some of those, some of his old shows are on, on SoundCloud and they're still like pretty astonishing to listen to especially as this was you know this is on radio one <laughs> mm. oh yeah chris morris was on radio yeah, one, it's very true. yeah. Is, uh, yeah. A, a, an amazing thing to listen to 
Um, yeah, I mean, quite forward-thinking um, for Radio 1 to be employing people like that that were really sort of edgy and yeah. did, weren't afraid of rocking the boat a bit, you know? Yeah. It's it's quite safe now, isn't it, Radio 1? It was, I don't think you'd... Well, the, the straight, I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the additional choice that we have with broadcasting and also, like, you know, listening to music and the amount of music that is being presented, um, it means that things are kind of, like, less less curated in a way or they're kind of a bit more conservative because it, we're going back to things being in their pockets again, like this station plays this music, this station plays this music, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know... Radio One was duty bound because there was no digital equivalent. There was no six music yet um, to kind of you know pre- present a wide range of music. Yeah, that wouldn't really fit on Radio Four or Radio Three or Radio Two. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. I remember being a young kid and listening to John Peel and some records. Be like, I've never heard anything like that before. And I remember, you know, it's like noise call or some gabber. I mean, radio you know. Radio One doesn't really even have. A kind of flagship indie show anymore. When it used to have like two or three a night, because mm-hmm. it have, did have the evening session. And and I know this podcast is going very like the good old days, vibes, but that you know <laughs> that's, that's how it's about. That's, that's, that's why I'm that's, doing that's, this. That's, that's uh, how it was. You know, <laughs> they found that out to six music now. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm absolutely. I love six music. Listen to it basically all the time. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Um, good. Uh, and yeah, let's. I guess, um, yeah. What do you like to use in the studio? Then you've got like you've got an amazing collection of gear here. Let's continue the nostalgia. Okay, well, <laughs> what is it? back to the seventies and eighties. Um, yeah, really, like what's I use MS Twenty M a lot, which is the kind of kit module version of the MS Twenty. Um, the SH One is a beast's baselines. Mm. Yeah. Um, nice. The Bizarro Juno, which is uh, this uh, thing here, this uh, oh, that. it's a Yamaha, uh, not Yamaha, uh, Roland HS60, mm-hmm. which is it's essentially a Juno 106, but but kind of repackaged for the home market with speakers built in. No way! Yeah. It looks a bit like a Casio, like a PSR yeah. keyboard. These get it's from... exact. It's the exact same synth as Juno 106. Really? Yeah. Like analog if you open circuitry. it, if you if you if you open it up, it says Juno One Hundred Six inside. Does it? Yeah. That's nuts. I've never even seen one of them. Yeah, it's all. I mean, all the filters and all the Everyth- everything's in the same place. It's just a different paint job. That is crazy. Uh, wow. Yeah, because ah, there is a rack, isn't there? There's a Roland HKS or something like. Maybe M- that's an M- MKS, that's the yeah, Super Jupiter. Jupiter. Yeah, 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 they're yeah. very very expensive. This is nuts. I mean, you could pass this in a. Sort of a charity shop. It used you? it used to be like the low key bargain. Yeah. Is it not? Is it not? No, no. Uh, people kind of twig to it now. <laughs> yeah, damn it. I know. I think that was like under two hundred quid. No. I think most most of the stuff in here like is all from is all from like junk shops and early early eBay and loot and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like very very little of it very little of it cost over two hundred pounds. Brilliant. That's the way to do it. Know, you've, got, you've done well here because we're just surrounded by analog circuitry that's like early 80s yeah maybe even late 70s yeah the Arp Omni that's the uh, I got that from a jumble sale <laughs> nice but that's like the uh, it's on the units remix but it's uh, the level terrace apart string synth sound is, is an Arp Omni is it yeah oh wow fantastic I love string synth I don't think there's any nicer 
sizzling synth sound and the yeah that, i mean that's a really that's a really great one sadly it's uh, a bit broken at the moment yeah you need a new key there do you need a new key? Um, yeah, it needs that needs like a total overhaul. Sadly, <laughs> it may. I think like it kind of it did the units remix and it kind of like decided just gave in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it did the it did the job. It did the job. It did the, it did the job. One. Yeah, exactly. It did the big one. And as and speaking of the big one, the um, Yamaha CS30, which I lugged back from Japan. Did you? Yeah. Wow, it's in really good nick. It looks. Well, the thing is, in Japan, like everything is they're kind of very. Like if you go to a record shop, every record is in absolutely incredible condition. It makes you wonder where the ones that aren't in good condition go, because <laughs> they're very particular about these things. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ban it one scratch, chuck it in the furnace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is in amazing condition. And yeah, we were talking just before we started recording about the filter and the, the sound of these. On the CS on the series. CS series. Yeah. Yeah, it's They've just... all got the same one. Um, this is a three oscillator, which is kind of a beast. Well, it's two oscillator and a sub oscillator, mm-hmm. um, and you can you can route you can route the filters into each other on this one as well because it's got two, it's also got two filters. So it? yeah, and you can oh, like route them into each other. Wow, that must be beefy as hell. Yeah. Well, you, you, do they have separate envelopes? Uh, you've got three em- three envelopes to choose from. You can it's it's sort of like it's almost like a modular but with switches. Like you can do got lots of kind of crazy routing on it. Yeah. So there's three envelopes to choose from, and you can nice. send whatever to them. Awesome. So I guess you could also do like stereo input. Can you have like stereo? It's got stereo. It's got. It's well. It's got like a pan. It's got. Um, it's got a. Pa- it's got a two outs. Like you could. You can stereo like each oscillator. Mm-hmm. Nice. So it's sort of stereo. Yeah. You can pan each oscillator if you wanted to. Quality. I love the CS series. I I reluctantly sold my CS five to someone because it was falling to pieces. Right. I thought I'm just going to get a new one. Still haven't <laughs> done it yet. I mean, my 10, I don't think I'll ever sell it because it was the first proper analog synth I ever bought. And it's kind of got a lot of uh, sentimental value on that front. God, yeah, they're so dark. Yeah. I think it's just the downward ramp on the LFO. There's something about that. Dong, right, yeah, dong, yeah, dong, yeah. Dong. It's so, it's just darkness. You can never make it sound. <laughs> well, it's that, it's that in the high pass. It's like that, that, that's that, that junk you're talking about, exactly. Yeah. It, there's just something about that. And when you filter other gear through it as well, it's really again like that high pass filters really because it's not that harsh it's actually quite quite soft yeah. like the, the oscillators seem harsh but like I don't know some some it, the end result always comes out quite dark but mm. the filters are actually pretty soft on it yeah it's sort of a war- it's I mean warming is it's probably like an overused word that doesn't really mean anything anymore but it's there's like a richness yeah it, it yeah. really pushes through um uh yeah I love I love them and it's sort of uh, early crystal method stuff I'm pretty sure they ran stuff through the CS right. filter because you can hear it and then yeah if I play it on the CS I'm I'm sort of hearing early crystal methods well I do know that if you go to like there's that one vintage synth site might be vintage synth.com if you look at any synth it says as used by Apollo Daft, 4, Punk. Daft Punk Apollo 440 yeah, and the Crystal Method it's like yeah. okay it's, it's literally shaming. it's literally every single synthesizer yeah, has just copy and paste that yeah, and exactly. all the synthesizers <laughs> <laughs> well funnily enough uh, I worked at Luke Masters uh, for a few years oh yeah of course and, you did and uh we, uh, I would use those for my research when I was doing product pages. Right, okay. <laughs> As used by, I think I did put little boots in one of them just after we saw her gig. Um, I think it was, I did a Probably an OS20. Uh, it was a Pro 1 I did a Pro 1 sample pack oh right and I put as used by and I added little boots 
because we just met her that weekend and given her like an arpeggiator that my mate makes under under this drum. And it's quite funny actually. She, I was, uh, I was really pissed at the gig when we went to see her play. So we we managed to give the support band some hardware that my mate makes. I'm, a, I'm aware of his his uh, gear. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's really amazing. And so we made sure that like she had one. These was in the really early days of trying to promote Jason's stuff because Jason doesn't promote his stuff. And so we're like, yeah, fucking hell. We'd, I knew the support band, so I was like, yeah, can you give that to her? And then when she was on stage, really near the end, I was hammered. Like, I don't really drink much anymore. I was super (laughs) hammered. No, she'd already had it. And she was like, oh, who gave me the arpeggiator and the thing? I was like, oh, it was me. And she was like, yeah, the soldering doesn't look very good on it. And I was one of the whole fucking audience. I was like, joking. She's from the north. They don't mess around. Don't mess around. Anymore. I can't remember my reaction, but I was like, "What? Are you serious?" <laughs> no, your friend stuff. Because um, when we did a mixed fortunes live show, there was a couple of things we used to omnicord live, but it's very bulky. Yeah, essentially, yeah, you yeah, use yeah. it on one song. I was kind of looking for kind of a similar solution at one point. I remember you said about it being yeah. a non-touch. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's totally possible. Like the the capacitance of the body. Yeah, um, and the other thing was we did. Um, it's before he did a. Uh, uh, he now does a kind of MIDI kind of like voltage thing mm-hmm. like for like you know lamps and LEDs and things like that yeah. we had a light show that was all all controlled by MIDI and we kind of built this kind of like quite rudimentary controller for it which sometimes worked sometimes didn't mm-hmm. and his kit for that would have been an absolute godsend at that time but it didn't exist at the time yeah it's really good that and it sold out very quickly the midi switcher yeah i'm supposed to have done a product demo for that and still haven't done it yet but um <laughs> but yeah it's a great device um you're literally just in ableton note on note off will turn a light on and off the cc's all fade and that's it and, and well that's it like i didn't have anything that would fade that's Right, I can send you one. I can make. I can, oh, I can make sure one comes your way. Okay, great. I've stopped playing live again. <laughs> yeah, there are a few videos of you playing live on yeah. on YouTube and stuff. Yeah. We did five shows, but they were a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's just expensive to do it because you know I have to pay everyone, mm-hmm. and you know, it's um, we didn't. Yeah, we have uh, from playing in other bands. I kind of like knew how to kind of not do it. So I kept it quite small gear wise, mm-hmm. um, but it was still kind of like tough, to, tough to tough to t- a tough sell and also a tough, um, yeah, tough to kind of financially do, be financially viable. Yeah, I guess um, you have to like. Um, it's something that you have to like build up and like if you could. Yeah. Well, this thing is not. It's if you're playing with kind of a backing band, it's not that thing where you're a band and you're all in it together and like you'll sleep on a few floors. To get to get there, mm-hmm. you, these are people who are like that. You know, that they're, they're doing a job, so you should be paying them. Yeah, yeah. And it, as you know, they they are both very they're very good friends, but at the same time, kind of like, you know, I wouldn't expect them to do it for free. So yeah, I just get you a couple of drinks. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, isn't it? <laughs> Um, but you did you did tour with a band called Whitey yes as well yeah that's well, how I knew not to do, how not to do it oh okay <laughs> really? yeah. yeah that was a blueprint yeah <laughs> cool yeah what was that like what, what did you do with them so I, I played synth um, Whitey's kind of um, I used to live with him years ago but it's, he's it's kind of like a very much like an almost LCD sound system kind of setup where it's one guy mainly in the studio with kind of like session musicians here and there and then a live it's a full band mm-hmm. um, 
and I was brought in to kind of like make it a bit more, a bit less backing tracking, a bit more live. So we did two tours of the USA, um, opening for Peaches on one of them, which was really fun. Oh, nice! But yeah, it's. Um, I, th- I think that every every DJ should be made to do like a shitty van tour across America. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they won't really complain about you know not having the right peanuts on their rider mm-hmm. <laughs> after doing that. Cool. Where where did you go to? Literally like, coast to coast in the US, so New York all the way to LA, like down through the south. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Would you do it again? Um, um, maybe. I don't know. It's 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 quite because the thing is, you forget how vast America is. It's uh, you know, sixteen hour drives and just to get to the next kind of major town. Mm. So. Yeah, and this was all like in a white van. This wasn't like there was no beds, <laughs> no, no, no reclining seats even. Nice. But, um, but that's the way to do it. Isn't but at the same like, time, really, you know. But that's it. But at the same time, I got to see, you know, got to see America in a way I would never have seen it any other way. You know, I'm not. I'm gonna go. Not gonna go to, back to Gainesville, Florida, anytime soon. <laughs> nice, cool man. Yeah, uh, I, he did a song nonstop, which I had on on vinyl. Yeah. Um, which was yeah a really cool track. I, it was one of those ones that just came out of nowhere. I was like oh maybe even bought it because of the front cover. Right. But yeah, it's a really sort of jamming sort of tune. Uh, I I wanted to also ask you about um, uh, yeah yeah I guess going back to records a little bit you you tweeted not long ago about having you you accidentally played a version of a track which had like a woman orgasming over the top of it oh no it's it's there's, there are a lot of records like this but it's, right. there's nothing there's nothing worse than like being halfway through playing a record and you forget that it has a section where a woman is having an orgasm yeah. it was very popular in the late seventies early eighties <laughs> you're like oh no. Especially if you're like playing at like a posh place, like somewhere, somewhere very like well to do. You're like, oh Christ, I forgot about this bit. Abort, abort, abort. Yeah, I mean, what do you do? You, do you, are you are you borrowing for records? Yeah, exactly. Looking for the next one. <laughs> Just go and get like the intern, the, the the glass washing guy to stand behind the desk for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was hilarious. I think we've all been there where we, you know, you're playing a record in front of people and you're like, this is the wrong side, or this isn't the one I normally play. Yeah. And uh, I did, that story just tickled me a lot. I just thought, like, oh, God, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And, um, yeah, you also uh, said something interesting about um, every other person can be a DJ nowadays. Do you... What did I say? <laughs> I think it was basically that. Um... I mean, it's true. I mean, it's, you know, the... Um... The uh, the start the starting point is more accessible than ever because you literally just need a computer, which before you had to have, um, whether whether it was on CD or vinyl, you had to have some kind of music collection, whereas it can now be acquired or you could even stream it. Mm-hmm. People do. I mean, there are, there's DJ software that works with the streaming services, as well, um, but I don't mean that in a negative way at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but like knowing your record collection inside out uh, is something that was like essential to DJing, wasn't it? Back in the day, like knowing all of those yeah, yeah. things that changed and where the timing. But it's again. But again, it's kind of like that's that's maybe that's maybe that's how we did it or I did it. Um, 
it's not completely essential. Like the story I was telling about Seven Nation Army, you can literally on the fly and still be very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you... Because on your mixes you play like really like a huge variety of music and so sometimes it's not really about beat matching them to, to line them up. How do you sort of choose one tune after the next? Usually there'll be some, some kind of thread that connects them, whether it's kind of a very loose thing like the drums might work over this or but sometimes it's kind of yeah I, don't, I, I do th- I've always said that um, beat matching is actually the least essential part about DJing mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't sound like the end of the world when you put one record on the next like seg- segueing is fine mm-hmm. you know nothing wrong with a segue but also beat matching for the sake of it is pretty bad like just to make two like you know two songs that are actually fighting against each other really like I've heard, I've heard that happen yeah, yeah, yeah. When it would be better, why not just fade one out and put the next one on? Mm-hmm. If it may, may, it may sound a lot better. Yeah. Do you ever mix with like effects, like a chaos pad or? Um, I, I mess mess with the kind of like onboard effects, but um, not the really. The DJM six hundred. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone's done that. Your first first thing you do is just like press the filter button like four hundred times. Now it's just. But never, never the, never the phaser. Never the phaser. Never the phaser. Never the phaser. You got to have your standards. You got to, um, yeah. You got to have your rules. Cool. So uh, yeah, how do you find new music then when you're DJing? Like, where do you, where do you? Um, various. I've sent some. Um, Bandcamp is really is really good resource. Um, there's a site called Bandcloud, which is a kind of a roundup of like what's good on SoundCloud and Bandcamp and things like that. Right. Um, and just you know, having relationships with people who who run labels and your kind of contemporaries is good to kind of like check in with those people and see what they've got. Mm-hmm. But also, it's fi- also you know, I'm, I'm not someone who strictly plays new music as well. So it's it's about kind of again, it's finding those threads of like. The good thing is I can hear a new record and think, oh, that would work well with like something I've never played but I've had knocking around that's 20 years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And you have some uh, DJing gigs lined up coming in this, in this year, San Diego? Just done it. Oh, just, <laughs> just done it, yeah. Why? Okay, wow. How was that? Oh, it's fantastic. I got to do a back-to-back with Errol disco set under apparently the biggest disco ball on the West Coast, which was quite impressive. Um, and we don't, we rarely go back to back, so that was a that was a treat. I don't think we've really done it in the US before either. So nice. that was a yeah, that was a treat. Cool. Where did you play? What was the set? Um, it was a place called Bang Bang in San Diego. It was an after party for the Cross Festival. Right. Nice. And what are the? Are you talking about your sort of seminal DJing uh, nights? You mentioned Osaka and Glasgow as being. Two of the most. Well, I've, I've referred to Osaka as the Glasgow, the two are London is Tokyo. <laughs> right. It's like the pop, like it's like kind of like the rowdier version. Is it? But I, I do have a rule that in the UK, the, the north, the further north you go, the better it gets. Generally, the crowds get better the further north you go. Mm-hmm. They get less reserved and less kind of um, precious. Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree with that. Um, but do you class where is Birmingham in the north to you? I mean, it's north of London. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't class as north. I just mean the further north That's you go. For, yeah, so it's, yeah, you know. Sorry. But yeah, I, I mean, I live here in Brighton at the moment. And right. I do find crowds are very reserved. But I think maybe just because they're really stoned. 
Because, <laughs> like, mostly everyone's stoned in Brighton all the time, and I think that's why it happens there sometimes. Right, OK. Um, but I'm sure people are getting stoned up north as well, so I don't know whether... Where's good, where's good to... I haven't played in Brighton a lot. Where's, where's actually good to go out in Brighton? Ooh. Uh, Fli- uh, flipping the interview. Anywhere. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not really... I don't really go out clubbing, to be honest. I just go to, like, weird synth, geeky synth nights where okay. there's people playing elastic bands that are with mic contacts on them and stuff oh there like you that. go um, the Haunt's really good I tell you, the Haunt is I a really do like good the live venue I, I saw Royal Trucks there yeah uh, Concord 2 is like standard always yeah. really 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 good classic yeah um, I've seen a lot of great bands there Hope and Ruin is always good for live stuff like um, t- International Teachers of Pop are playing there fairly soon okay I don't know if you know them though someone mentioned them very recently but really good okay really good it's um yeah it's like an, an offshoot of a band called the Moon Landings oh that that's why yeah I think that's what was why they were uh... yeah so I'm probably not the best person to ask but if you're gonna okay. if you're gonna put me on the spot <laughs> I say the Horns Concord Two and the Concord Two is a safe one and uh, yeah Hope and Ruin well, I'm going to see Stereo Lab at the Concord Two oh, yeah. in, in the summer yeah cool and the horn I was very impressed by the sound there yeah it's an odd shaped room so you yeah. don't get standing waves yeah so like yeah there's something yeah there's something cool just make sure you it like... was it was loud but not oppressive yeah yeah I perfect, liked it a lot. perfect description of a great gig <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think um, Queen Kwong's playing there okay soon and uh, yeah I'm really looking forward to seeing her at the horn is it Queen Kwong as in like Married to Wes Borland, Queen Kong. I don't know. Because I think Wes it's Borland two. Is. He was in Limp Biscuit. <laughs> oh, okay. It, I don't know. I don't know if she's married. Okay. Yeah, she does really good music though. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, you mentioned that you quite sort of like lo-fi, cheap equipment. You yeah. Like using that. Why? What? What? What draws you to that? Um, just, just things. That, I mean, I, I love the possibilities that you get from being able to work in the computer and being able to edit and manipulate sounds but at the same time there's kind of like a, a, a grit as amazing as plugins are there's a grit that you can't really get without kind of air and kind of transistors mm-hmm. and it's usually kind of like I mean I, I'm, I'm a big pedal enthusiast cool can I have a look at the pedals what oh, these, are some, these are some here um, yeah nice um, some of the, the legendary Korg Black Label era. Um, yeah. yeah, wow, that is uh, 1970s, isn't it, yeah, by the look yeah, of it? That too as well, Black Label, yeah. Um, yeah, it's got a Korg Delay, Korg Phaser. Um, uh, full-tone Coral Flange, which is a very subtle but very great flanger. Mm. Um, Korg Octave, not Korg. Boss. Boss, yeah. Where, where, where is my mind? Just If you say Boss again, I'll just <laughs> cut it in over a Boss. <laughs> boss. <laughs> boss. And the synth pedal is that? Yeah, is it? This, I love that thing. They're so good. It's um, not dissimilar to a three hundred three. Um, the kind of like the kind of sawtooth on it is very like, very, like it's a really great kind of like crappy filter on it. Mm. And it's also really good for like, kind of, synth fuzz as well. But this is this is just the boss board. <laughs> the boss board. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. About. Um, and I quite what I what I would used to do with a uh, synth pedal I had like that is put a drum machine into it. That's what yeah exactly what I used to do with that when I when it's it up. Completely. Yeah. Um, same with the vocoder. I think there's a vocoder setting on the Zoom. There is. That's the re- main reason they bought it originally was uh, for the vocoder setting. Yeah, yeah. But it turns out like the ring modulator is the star on that. I think. 
Yeah, the lo-fi, the sort of bit, cr- it has a bit crushery sort of one. Yeah, there's that too, yeah. I think Circuit Benders does a modification to it as well, so you can you can battery, you can starve the power. So oh, if okay. you've got like a reverb tail, it's like, you can go, oh, okay. like, fuck it up and then speed it back up again. Interesting. Um, yeah. They're, they're great. Uh, you know what? Um, I interviewed um, Aid Fenton, who produced Gary Newman's latest album, and in amongst his glorious studio of like High Soviet end. synths yeah. Yeah. and all these crazy things, he had one of them right at the bottom. And I was like, "Fuck!" Well, Simi and Moro Disco used to use one live. I doubt they do now, but um, in their early days, and they had you know very kind of like high-end high end gear but they had like one or two of those in the middle but like I think they mainly used it for the ring mod as mm-hmm. well nice yeah I think there is something like crunchy yeah um, as you say the software is very clean and very predictable whereas yeah. sometimes these things when they don't work is when magic happens yeah absolutely like the yeah sort of weird, weird harmonic things happen that you just can't you can't get from software. But the things I like about synths in general is it's not that so much that I'm kind of an analog snob. It's more that I like to be very hands-on. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of tactile nature more than anything. Definitely. I Absolutely. mean, you know, modern soft synths are kind of amazing, really. But um, yeah, because but they're kind of an they're an approximation rather than kind of being. You know, you you can make you can make you can make a, you know you can make a, an analog sounding patch on a soft synth mm. yeah but it's like it's still kind of an approximation isn't it definitely and I think the connection of your body actually making those things happen there's a magic in that yeah that absolutely it's more than just your finger going eh, and then yeah there's some the, the physical connection to it yeah it's a huge huge deal nice one is it all hooked up ready to go should we just quickly jam uh, <laughs> nothing's really hooked up at the minute. Who's playing that? There you go. It's so sweet. I love the fact that it's got the dual. It's got high pass and low pass filter, so you can like, yeah, band pass it. Well, yeah, the, yeah exactly. Yeah, the high, the highs before the low. Yeah. Do that. Do a little pocket there. Yeah, it's a beast. Nice. Cool. Um... Yeah, and you've got loads of other nice little bits and pieces. It has been referred to um, by my friend Alex Warren, aka Kiwi, as Rory, Rory's junk shed uh, <laughs> before. <laughs> so, Where yeah. synths go to die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's that call? Is that a drum machine? This is a very odd cork thing. It's kind of all oh, in one. Wow. It's got a super section. Wow. You can't, you can't really change the sound, but it is analogue, and it's sort of... Um, What's the um, cork synth that looks like this, design-wise? Oh, the Monotribe. Or the po- oh no, the, like the Poly 800. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. the guts of a Poly 800, but kind of like with preset kind of um, rhythms, rhythms and um, and like synth lines, and but like with the kind of stylistic. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very odd find. Yeah. I love it when they yeah. There was a certain time in the eighties when they thought this was a good idea, wasn't it? Like, yeah. No, we don't need keys <laughs> anymore. We're just gonna press a press a piece of uh, plastic. Yeah. Wow. I've never ever seen anything uh, like this before. That's cool. Super section. Which is very Japanese. It's a very Japanese kind of 
name for something. Yeah. <laughs> PSS fifty. Wow, that's cool. And it, it's so, it looks like a groove box. It's sort it's sort it of is, like but you can't really um, create your own patterns. You can kind of it will give you a kind of um, like a rhythm and a style, but it's like you know the chord section on a Casio or something. It will you can change the chords, but it will still play in that kind of on the groove that they've decided and like the bass line they've decided will kind of accompany it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which but is nice, brilliant. But, but like you know, like an Omnichord or something like that, it's a good little writing writing tool. Yeah, definitely. And I think the Chemical Brothers always said about the, the way they made music was always they're making sounds, they're making noises, yeah. and that's where the music comes from. They're not sitting there going, well, if we put a A minor suspended third here, this is going to... They're not doing that. No, the they're sound, the making, sound is a hook. Yeah, like, and, I, and that is such a great approach to making music. Yeah, I mean, again, especially if you're working with machines and kind of, you know, working on the fly. Yeah, I love, oh yeah, love their stuff. Yeah, um, I guess maybe... It would be interesting to talk to you about Keith Flint and because uh, he uh, committed suicide fairly recently, and um, yeah, like what your thoughts on him are, and yeah, how yeah. Um, well, the Prodigy were a huge band for me growing up. As I said, I was into kind of like rave, rave things and rock things, and they were like a good kind of bridge band. Like there's that kind of connecting the dots thing as we've talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. They were a really good example of that. Um, and the kind of their live shows like late kind of mid to late nineties were astonishing. Like it was very, very punk, but very, 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 very rave as well. Mm. They had Giz Butt was the guitarist. Uh yeah. They I believe so. With him. Yeah. So they had like live electronic yeah. Uh, ele- yeah, electric guitarist. And also like for years and years, you know, when they were when when the Prodigy Experience came out, they were doing those PAs and kind of like, you know, still racks of live gear and kind of like it was probably overheating or whatever. Um, Six SH one oh ones just to yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um yeah, they were a very very important band to me and it just and that was you know, even before they were kind of as big as they were. But they, I mean, you know, get, getting getting that music to number one is wild. <laughs> yeah, who did they knock off the charts when oh, it was, I couldn't, with Breathe? It was like Robson and Jerome or something. Oh, well, that's that's <laughs> that's quite satisfying, isn't it? It's unbelievable. That's <laughs> fucking justice happening, isn't it? That's justice in the world. But yeah, really sad that he yeah decided to take his life, and I'm sure there was a lot of you know details behind it that none of us are aware of. But what an amazing guy. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I I hadn't really... I knew very little about him as a person. And it's kind of amazing their stories that have come out. It's not been kind of like, you know... They've been great stories about, like, how kind and kind of giving he was. Mm. Uh, It's just very sad that, you know, he felt he couldn't go on anymore. Yeah. Amazing guy. Amazing guy. It took... Yeah. I don't know. What can you say? He was... Yeah, he was amazing. And yeah, you said you saw them live a few times as well. Quite, yeah, quite a lot in the yeah. in that kind of mid to mid mid to late nineties when I was first starting to go to shows and festivals and things like that. Just happened to be fat of the land era. <laughs> oh no, we, um, no, I'd say music music for Jilted Generation really? wow. kind of era was wow. when it was. Yeah, poison. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was that there was that show that was kind of doing the rounds um, on Facebook and social media. It was like them at the Phoenix Festival. I don't know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. That was that was the first time I ever saw them. I think. Wow, and that was a hell of a show. It was it was like one of the hottest summers on record. It was just <laughs> unbelievable. 
Yeah, I think they had stories of when Liam first wrote Firestarter and um, I, I, I'm not sure what, where the lyrics came from, but when they, when they, I think they recorded it in a hotel or something like that. They just did the vocals quickly in the hotel and they ended up being the final vocals on the right. track, but they drove back from somewhere listening to Firestarter on loop because <laughs> they knew that they'd made something magic. Well, their first record, they were just like um, uh, Keith and, and Maxim... Um, they would, they would, they would, and they were just, they were the dancers. They would like, there was no, they didn't do any vocals on the first Prodigy record, but they were, they were there in the artwork. They were part of the live show, and mm-hmm. just seeing them kind of like, you know, progress from kind of being almost, you know, starting off almost as a novelty band. Um, yeah, yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Leroy Thornhill as well who then became Fright Crank, left them. But yeah. yeah, they did. I mean, they were so pivotal to the live thing at Maximum Keith. Like, yeah. obviously, Liam Howlett is, is incredible. He's, like, an amazing producer, brilliant performer, and, like, he's darkness personified almost. Uh, uh, but, yeah, without... Yeah, with Keith and, and Maxim, there's just so much energy on stage, yeah. like, bouncing between the two of them. Yeah, incredible. Incredible guy. Yeah, you worked on... We've only really talked about Trash, but you have been involved in quite a few different club nights, haven't you? Well, after Trash finished, we started one called Durr, which ran for a few years until the end closed down, and then we kind of became like a roving concern. But we took over the Monday night slot, and that was kind of... um, occupied that kind of... the kind of new rave years. So kind of... uh, the band who kind of reflected that. Um, But that that, uh, involved me kind of taking over room one going from room two at the end and that's kind of like taming a wild horse but (laughs) everything you play sounds ten times bigger in that room or sounded ten times bigger in that room I see Um, so that was like a real that was like I mean I would you know I was very confident in my my abilities but at the same time I'd never really played anything on a sound system that powerful before so that was a good a good education to have definitely having having, you know having to kind of control that every week yeah like re- reining in the beast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What sort of sound system do you know what it was like? I couldn't. I, mean? I think it was. I think it was kind of like, like a function one before function one. Like it, it looks very similar, but at the same time, I don't think function one was kind of making as many kind of sound systems back then. I could be completely wrong on that. Mm-hmm. But it was, but it was this like the you know there was walls of speakers. It was like a, you know, punchy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable, and also a great sounding DJ booth as well, which is quite rare. Yeah, you've got a bit of a, um, a, a fascination with DJing with the telephone. I've noticed you mentioned that in a few interviews. Well, that's uh, that's something I the the, fir- the uh, first club I went to, which was the All Ages Rave Club. The DJ there had a telephone. So that was the first DJ I ever saw had one. Mm-hmm. I didn't invent it by any means, but like a lot of the kind of old school guys have those things, and I've gone through very different. Uh, I've got various uh, incarnations of mine. Mm-hmm. Currently, I'm number five, which is the best sounding of them all, I think. Nice. Yeah. Do you, you want to get one of those big mo- 80s mobile phones? <laughs> <laughs> that's the next level. Maybe that's it, yeah. <laughs> Battery lasts for approximately three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, yeah, it's a Sony driver inside, so it's kind of like a big, big headphone inside. Mm-hmm. 
Nice. It's not the uh, stock telephone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not reception. Yeah. Nice, man. So, um, yeah, that was... That was um, you finished, uh, is that right? You finished. Uh, we finished. Uh, we finished. Well, Dur, Dur, the end closed down uh, ten years ago, and then we did Dur as kind of like a series of kind of like one-offs at different venues, and then we kind of finally finished it. Oh, I can't remember what year it is now, but um, that's when we did the first mixed fortune show. Was at the last. Was at the final. Was at the final Dur, which was a oh. uh, yeah roadblock party at XOIO. Was it? Yeah, really, really great night. Not great night. Really cool. Um, and you have a piece of the floor. Yeah. Of the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you got a place spot. for that yet? Where's that um, it's, I'm actually planning on putting it at my feet at the studio, kind of Brian Wilson in the sandbox style, to kind of uh, <laughs> send, send, send some vibes my way. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you said you'd put in so much time on that dance floor. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. That that would be really cool. You never know what might happen then. You might just get something. Some some of Mr. C's mojo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is he still around? Is he? Is he I still? can tell you. I think I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure he's. Um, I'm pretty sure he never went away. Mm-hmm. Nice. So how about in London? Like where do you, where for you is like cool to go to now? What's like where's a really good club night that you sort of admire and respect? Cool. So yeah, you you did uh, and you did another night called Say Yes, which oh, was a disco night. Yeah, I did a disco night with my friend um, Nadia Kasaiba um, for some years um, called Say Yes. That was again like lots of different venues. So it was like, a small kind of fun thing, but it's kind of like a good excuse for us to kind of like stretch our disco muscles a bit. Mm-hmm. And she's always been one of my favourite DJs. So. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, you've got quite a lot of experience with running nights. What would you say? What would you say? Like the key elements to to making a night work is think about um, think about the experience of the people coming in because it's very it's very easy to set up a sound system and put on a night, but like it's small details like lights and movement and kind of like is this an enjoyable room to be in? Is the room pleasant? Like you know. Mm-hmm. Because people, if people are handing over their money, then you know, you should you know give them give them their money's worth. Definitely, yeah. Lights make a huge difference yeah. to the atmosphere. I've been there. to like a lot of parties where the music has been great, but there's been literally no moving moving lights, and it makes a huge huge difference. I think, mm. especially now with people so accustomed to seeing like EDM shows where it's like. Star Wars happening above you. Yeah, you don't need to go that theme. far. But it's like you know, you can you can still be minimal and kind of warehousey, but still have kind of like movement and just kind of like things that kind of like if there's energy in the room, it's kind of it, that will you know that's quite infectious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I remember drum and bass nights that we used to go to. Um, it was in a place called the Cellars in Shrewsbury. It was underground, and it was like one of the. It was um, like Ministry of Sound said. It was one of the best club nights in the UK. It's a tiny drum and bass club. But yeah, the energy that you'd have in there, maybe 150 people or something, right. was phenomenal. Yeah. Like, really, you could feel it in the air when you walked in. And like, all the big drum and bass acts used to play there. So yeah, I know exactly what, what that sense was. Yeah. Yeah, tangible excitement. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Stuff happening. Cool. Um, you also worked in A and R for a time. Yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, you said you didn't like. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one likes A and R, do they? It's like it's not. Uh, yeah. 
Um, I did also pick up on a couple of things. You said um, you don't like to mix your own tracks. Yeah, it's 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 um, it's very easy to get demoitis, as they say. Um, it's good to kind of like have someone kind of like essentially take it take it from you for a little bit and just kind of like freshen it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, not everyone feels the same. I mean, I I feel like I can I'm like a lot of my remixes I've mixed myself. But um, I th- I just feel like there are people that can do a better do a better job than me. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think sometimes you do get once you've heard the track fifty thousand times, you're ready to give it to someone else to see wh- whether it, you know it's still there or not. Yeah, I mean it's it's the same as kind of letting someone else do the artwork. It's you know it's just kind of handing over someone to make. It. I've made the thing now. Help me present it better. Mm-hmm. Great, and then when it comes to like mastering, do you have like a go-to person? Uh, it's it varied. I mean, I did a lot of my vinyl pressings with Curved, who've now they were they were actually next door to me in my old studio, but they've since Convenient. moved to Hay. Yeah, but now since the uh, studio building has gone, um, they've moved to Hastings. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's not far from yeah. where I am. Are you gonna? Uh, do you, like, you have anything on the cards? That um, I'm currently working on a bunch of stuff at the moment. For an EP coming soon. Oh, nice! Yeah. So you're going back to the traditional formats. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I think there should be like one in between an EP and an album. It's like six tracks or seven. I feel like but albums are getting not... shorter though. So and people are presenting six songs as an album. Like it's too many for an EP, but like oh, we'll call it an album. Yeah, there's a real blurring of like where we're going with music at the moment, and yeah, I think we just need a new name for six tracks. <laughs> just call it a re- just call it a release I mean I, I, you know I think it's kind of it's funny that albums are kind of generally like a set number somewhere around 10 like why where did that come from yeah I mean it, it, it came I guess it came from how many three minute pop songs would fit on two sides of a record mm-hmm. and we're still kind of in depth to that and the thing is if you're making dance music a lot of those songs are a lot longer than that so you're then going into like a two-hour record mm-hmm. if you have ten songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, which yeah leads me to quite an interesting point that you said about, which is totally, I totally agree with it. Um, experience is a disability in dance music. Um, <laughs> I think I can quote you on that. No, 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 yeah, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I don't remember saying. I don't remember saying that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, but I totally agree with it. I think that's a really valid point because I think electronic. I probably said that a while ago, but I think the tables have really turned on that because people are being very, you know, reverent of club culture and kind of looking back a lot more mm-hmm. and kind of looking for the people that did kind of like lead the way a bit. I'm not putting myself in that in that category, but that's it's quite amazing that these people are getting like a second second shot at things. I listened to um, an interview with Kevin Saunderson recently and he was saying that like he essentially wasn't working for years and years, but this you know this new kind of focus on classic club culture has kind of given him he's working every weekend now yeah one of the three guys who started techno am I correct yeah well yeah one of the Belleville three yeah that's amazing isn't it it's a little bit like the film The Wrestler have you seen that <laughs> yeah The <laughs> yeah, Wrestler but the thing is it's, it's also the same you know I'd say it's very true in pop music where people, people there's, there's an obsession with newness and newness more than ever is kind of is um it's the currency because um 
most media will will just want to write will want you know it's it's just it's it's kind of as old it's as old as pop music it's not a complaint either but it's it's um it's just a realistic way of uh, seeing it it's people are going to focus on if they're going to report they're going to report on the shiny new thing yeah they want to say like yeah. this 14 year old prodigy has just created the sickest new exactly track before mo- before moving this... on to the next 14 year old prodigy yeah yeah <laughs> we're done with him now remember the one we had last week <laughs> yeah. forget about him rather than saying this 55 year old guy who's been working in music for 35 years yeah, like, forget about just... Beethoven he's Amadeus it's, it's, <laughs> it goes back that far <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's essentially what happened <laughs> Yeah, but it is, I think it is a true thing, and um, yeah, I that think might be. That, the, I might I have got that the wrong way around, um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> feel free to keep it. Though. Yeah, no, I, I, I do feel that's a really valid point, you know, because I know lots of people who are really great producers who like, yeah, they just haven't like, they haven't had the success they deserve in my eyes. But I guess that's yeah. just like life isn't it that's yeah. just the way it goes the thing is it's, it's at the end of the day it's show business so and you know it's not a meritocracy is it yeah it's not 100% logical yeah it's yeah it's not necessarily fair it's not built to be fair <laughs> built to make money <laughs> exactly make people dance oh yeah I would, just just on a side note really you seem to be a really big fan of um, television programmes such as The Simpsons and <laughs> Curb Your Enthusiasm okay yeah, yeah. it's true guilty yeah, as charged yeah, yeah. So what, uh, like, when did that sort of start and what? Um, the Simpsons is one of those things that, like, again, I can't really imagine a time where it didn't exist. Um, it's just it's just the best TV show of all time, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I saw you tweeting about it the other day, like, saying, oh, there's, a, there's this particular episode, yeah. is it on? It's, it's one of those things where it, I th- cause it started when I was uh, maybe about 12 or something. And it's it's kind of it's really shaped my sense of humour. It's mm-hmm. one of a, one of like a handful of things that has, has really shaped that. And yeah, so I'm grateful for, to it for that. Yeah, like I think for me, The Simpsons was like the corrupt the way the police force are portrayed was like that's exactly <laughs> what it's like <laughs> incompetent, corruptible. Yeah, <laughs> and like the governors, you know, people who are in charge. It's like we're yeah, literally and, seeing that and the religious right leaders now. and yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing portrayal of overreality. Uh, sort of unlike, well, Curb Your Enthusiasm is also that, but it's just our own lives, our own pitiful lives. Well, ev- ev- everyone, everyone thinks they're Larry. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> I love that scene when he's got, he's, he's, um, he's got married, I don't know if he's got married to, is it Loretta? Yeah. And then she gets cancer. Yeah. And he, like, he's- has that brain spasm. <laughs> I think that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. I'd, I'd still laugh. I, you know, I just lie in bed at night and just think about that. So I'm just absolutely pissed myself. So funny. Larry David is amazing. I'm, I was, I was more, I'm more, um, I was more affected by um, beloved cunt <laughs> from Kirby Theism as just a masterpiece of, of comedy writing. Which one is that? What that one? Um, he has to write an obituary for a. For somebody, it's, like, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, supposed yeah, to be beloved cunt. aunt, but thanks to a typo in the newspaper, it comes out as beloved cunt. And then, it, then they like come in and read the newspaper, yeah. and like yeah. someone else reads They're it. Furious. That is, that is genius. There's there's also the carpool one, which is quite funny, where he's got, oh yeah, he needs sex to worker. take a prostitute, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then like these bosses come in, and it's just like um, he's like, she's this is a prostitute. She's great. He doesn't even make any excuses. It's just like. <laughs> She is a prostitute. 
what do you, what do you sort of what are you up to at the moment? What sort of things are you working on? Um, still putting this place together, wiring wise and getting up and running. Um, working on some new material. Um, some oh, your EP, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. some some collabs that I'm not at liberty to talk about. <laughs> um, Excellent. Yeah, just getting getting more music out because it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Nice. And uh, like, what format are you are you going? Where are you going with it? In terms of formats, um, we'll see when it's we'll see when it's uh, when it's done. But um, I would like I would like to have some kind of physical format, whether that's a record or not, whether it's kind of an object or you know some other you know some something something tangible associated with it. it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to have be able to play music on it, but um, yeah, w- working on some ideas on that front. Nice, yeah. And um, are, are any of your your friends here are going to be enlisted. Um, I'd say I'd say most of them are going to most of them are going to get an appearance of some kind. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, you've got a formidable formidable collection here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, thanks very much for oh, speaking to me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I can put the heat back on now. I really enjoyed talking to Rory. He's a lovely guy and um, he's definitely uh, a gearhead. He loves his analogue synths. He's got a really nice collection of vintage stuff. Um, More old than new, which is sort of like the way I'm going really with my stuff. Yeah, an amazing guy. And you should check out his remixes. Uh, Check out his DJ sets too. If you ever have a party and you need some music to go on. uh, For me, Rory Phillips is like the default one. Everyone's going to be happy. Everyone's going to love it. Do check out uh, his music. Okay, next month, I've got absolutely no idea who's going to be on yet again. You'll find out when I do. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank you again for listening. Uh, If you have a moment, please check out my remix of uh, Battery Operated Orchestra, which is online and on Bandcamp. I'm Midiera. That was Midiera Meets. I'll see you again soon.